You're listening to Enchanted, a podcast on the history of magic, sorcery, and witchcraft. I'm Corinne Wieben. A little over a decade after the end of the American Civil War, a new menace arrived in Ipswich, Massachusetts. As one author put it, after a series of quiet years, the streets began to be enlivened in 1878 with the bicycle, a most ungainly-looking novelty, with the rider perched above and riding astride a wheel five or six feet in diameter, followed by a diminutive little trailer on which he flashed along at incredible speed. Clubs were formed, and flocks of gay riders on long Sunday tours, their bugles sounding and banners waving, dashed through the town. But as the bicycle made its debut in the warming weather and dragged the people of Ipswich reluctantly into the modern era, a much older and more familiar drama was playing out in the nearby Superior Court of Salem, a trial for witchcraft, some two centuries after the famous Salem Witch Trials. A woman by the name of Lucretia L.S. Brown had filed a suit with the court against a man named Daniel Harrison Spofford for, in her words, using malicious animal magnetism to cause her illness and injury. The short-lived trial is commonly held to be the last witchcraft trial in the United States, but its roots lay in the foundation of one of America's modern religious movements. In this episode, I bring you the story of a charismatic religious leader, schism, and mesmerism in the Ipswich Witch Trial of 1878. Daniel Spofford was born in 1842 in New Hampshire but moved to Massachusetts at age 10 with his brother and widowed mother. He worked first as a farmhand, then as a watchmaker's apprentice. In 1861, at age 20, he enlisted to fight in the Civil War, serving in the Army of the Potomac and fighting in some 20 engagements, including a devastating battle in Pennsylvania, near the town of Gettysburg. He mustered out in 1864 and went to work at a shoe factory in Lynn, Massachusetts. In 1871, however, he met a woman named Mary Baker Glover and took an interest in her manuscripts. Glover, who had suffered from illness as a young woman, believed that she had healed herself through an intense practice of faith and had devoted her life to teaching others to do the same. When Glover learned of Spofford's interest in her writings, she sent him the following note. Mr. Spofford, I tender you a cordial invitation to join my next class and receive my instruction in healing the sick without medicine, without money, and without price. Spofford became one of her most devoted students and began practicing as a healer himself. In class, Glover turned many of her students over to Spofford for instruction. She addressed him as Harry, after his middle name of Harrison, and showed her appreciation of his loyalty by presenting to him, in a silver case, the gold pen with which she had written the book on her method of spiritual healing, science and health, 
with key to the scriptures. That May, Spofford opened an office in Lynn and hung a shingle reading, Dr. Spofford, Scientific Physician. As one author has described him, Spofford was an idealist, somewhat tinged with the gentle melancholy of the dreamer, a type with which the literature of New England has made us all familiar. His frame was delicate, his hands and features finely cut, and his eyes were intense and very blue in color. His voice was low, and his manner gentle and somehow aloof. On May 26, 1875, Spofford wrote that, at a meeting of Glover's students, three, including himself, were appointed to find a venue for Glover to teach in, and to raise revenue for the rent. On June 8th, the group rented the Templars Hall on Market Street, and, as Spofford recorded, At the meeting this evening, George H. Allen was chosen president, George W. Barry, secretary, and Daniel H. Spofford, treasurer. The society to be known as the Christian Scientists. Having completed her book, Glover talked Spofford into promoting his sales, requiring that he hand over his practice to one of her new students, Asa Gilbert Eddy. Eddie had been a patient of Spofford's and had become a student of Glover's teaching shortly after. Glover began to show Eddie, whom she called Gilbert, special attention, allowing him to address her as Mary and praising him openly. When other students began to display their jealousy, Glover was deeply distressed, regarding it as a mental attack or a drain on her powers. As her relationship with Gilbert Eddie deepened, the two decided to marry. Two days before her wedding, Glover wrote in a panic to Spofford. In a nearly incoherent voice, she writes, Now, Dr. Spofford, won't you exercise reason and let me live, or will you kill me? Your mind is just what has brought on my relapse, and I shall never recover if you do not govern yourself and turn your thoughts wholly away from me. Do, for God's sake, and the work I have before me, let me get out of this suffering. I never was worse than last night, and you say you wish to do me good, and I do not doubt it. Then won't you quit thinking of me? I shall write no more to a male student and never more trust one to live with. No student nor mortal has tried to have you leave me that I know of. Dr. Eddy has tried to have you stay. You are in a mistake. It is God and not man that has separated us and for the reason I begin to learn. Do not think of returning to me again. I shall never again trust a man. It is mesmerism that I feel and is killing me. It is mortal mind that only can make me suffer. Now stop thinking of me, or you will cut me off soon from the face of the earth. She appears to have survived this perceived attack since she married Gilbert on New Year's Day of 1877. Glover, now Mrs. Eddy, taught her students that bodily harm could be overcome by spiritual means, and there is nothing but God in the universe, rendering all evil entities imaginary. According to her, the natural human state is health and happiness. If a person failed to achieve that, well, it was clearly a test of one's moral or spiritual fortitude. When Eddy began to experience frequent relapses of her illness, she attributed it to the illness and weakness she lifted from others, 
bearing their burdens and transgressions, and she began to remind her students that Christ, too, suffered on the cross. She believed she not only carried her students' illnesses, but that they fed from her to bolster their own strength. On April 14, 1877, she decided to leave town for an undisclosed retreat and wrote a letter to Spofford, explaining, This hour of my departure I pick up from the carpet a piece of paper, write you a line to say I am at length driven into the wilderness. Everything needs me in science. My doors are thronged. The book is in waiting, but those who call on me mentally in suffering are in belief killing me, stopping my work that none but me can do in their supreme selfishness. How unlike the example I have left them. It would be no greater crime for them to come directly and thrust a dagger into my heart. They are just as surely in belief killing me and committing murder. If the students will continue to think of me and call on me, I shall at last defend myself, and this will be to cut them from me utterly in a spiritual sense by a bridge they cannot pass over, and the effect of this on them they will then learn. Plagued with illness, Eddie needed an explanation. She needed to restore the idea of evil to her philosophy. The answer eventually emerged in the form of malicious mesmerism. Critics of her movement, or at least of its originality, had already equated it with the art of mesmerism. Named after its developer, the German doctor Franz Anton Mesmer, mesmerism asserts that there is a natural link, a transference of energy between all living things. Eddie's theory of healing, based on mental and spiritual focus, relied on this foundation. However, in her attempt to explain her feelings of persecution and to discredit those students who had left the movement, she insisted that she had not latched on to the fashion of mesmerism, but that those students who had chosen to leave surely had, with evil intent. When students abandoned her, she assumed it must be with the intent to harm in mind, and she assigned to them the darkest motives, writing, Some years ago, the history of one of our young students, as known to us and many others, diverged into a dark channel of its own, whereby the unwise young man reversed our metaphysical method of healing and subverted his mental power apparently for the purposes of tyranny peculiar to the individual. A stolid moral sense, great want of spiritual sentiment, restless ambition and envy embedded in the soil of this student's nature, metaphysics brought to the surface, and he refused to give them up, choosing darkness rather than light. His motives moved in one groove, the desire to subjugate. A despotic will choked his humanity. Carefully veiling his character through unsurpassed secretiveness, he wore the mask of innocence and youth, but he was young only in years. A master plotter, dark and designing, he was constantly surprising us, and we half shut our eyes to end the pain of discovery while we struggled with the gigantic evil of his character, but failed to destroy it. In one former student, Richard Kennedy, Eddie located all her afflictions, failures, and other misfortunes, calling him a moral assassin in one of her writings. As the new doctrine of malicious mesmerism emerged, 
the language Eddie used began to strongly resemble the language of witchcraft. She explained to her readers that, having instanced a few cases of the evil workings of the hidden agency in our midst, our readers may feel an intent to learn somewhat of the indications of this mental malpractice of demonology. Its tendency is to sour the disposition, to occasion great fear of disease, dread, and discouragement, to cause a relapse of former diseases, to produce new ones, to create dislikes or indifference to friends, to produce sufferings in the head, in fine, every evil that demonology includes and that metaphysics destroys. Eddie added a new section to the third edition of Science and Health called Demonology, in which she created a nightmare version of the real Kennedy, who had meanwhile been building his own practice as well as a reputation for kindness and good morals. But to hear Eddie tell it, he was the Nero of today, regaling himself through a mental method with the tortures of individuals, who will fall upon his own sword, and it shall pierce him through. Let him remember this when, in the dark recesses of thought, he is robbing, committing adultery, and killing. The nemesis of that hour shall point to the tyrant's fate, who falls at length upon the sword of justice. Around this time, Eddie began to teach techniques to protect against malicious mesmerism. She interrupted her classes with long diatribes about Kennedy, and her new students, put off by this show of malice, began to leave. Spofford begged her to stop and stick to the principles of love and compassion on which Christian science was founded. She begged her students to meet in order to turn back the evils onto Kennedy, prompting a few more of them to quit the movement. One student said that the more he wished Kennedy ill, the more he felt the power of evil in himself, writing, Thoughts born of malice influence only those who originate them. Despite the obvious risks, in 1887, Daniel Spofford decided to break with Eddie. He left her community of students, taking his own patients and followers with him. Eddie, predictably, made an addendum to her notes in Science and Health. Behold, thou criminal mental marauder that would blot out the sunshine of earth, that would sever friends, destroy virtue, put out truth, and murder in secret the innocent, befouling thy track with the trophies of thy guilt. I say, behold, the cloud no bigger than a man's hand already rising in the horizon of truth to pour down upon the guilty head the hailstones of doom. Eddie, by this point, had refined malicious mesmerism or malicious animal magnetism, into a complete theory, enabling her to extend it from Richard Kennedy to Daniel Spofford. This new concept, as close to the existence of evil as her metaphysics came, asserted that not only did these mesmerists dupe their patients, they also actively sought to harm their physical and spiritual health. Unless trained in Christian science, the victims of mesmerism would suffer misfortune and ruin in their businesses their marriages, and any important aspect of their lives. By spring of 1877, many students had turned instead to Spofford for guidance. Eddie responded by insisting that Spofford turn his practice over to her husband and use his time to promote her book instead. When Spofford insisted on paying back those students who had invested in the latest edition of Science and Health rather than putting the money toward a new edition, he received the following notice in January of 1878. Dr. D.H. Spofford of Newburyport has been expelled from the Association of Christian Scientists for immorality 
and as unworthy to be a member. A similar statement was published in the Newburyport Herald. Spofford was reminded of something he had heard Eddie say many times. Whosoever is not for me is against me. A few months later, the Supreme Judicial Court at Salem saw Daniel Spofford charged with witchcraft. The plaintiff was Lucretia L. S. Brown of Ipswich, one of Eddie's former students. As a child, Brown suffered a spinal fracture, leading to permanent disability. She claimed to have been healed by Christian science after meeting Eddie, but after a relapse, her treatment failed, and she turned to Eddie for answers. Eddie claimed it was Spofford using malicious mesmerism to work against her. The text of the suit reads as follows. Humbly complaining, the plaintiff, Lucretia L.S. Brown of Ipswich in said county of Essex, showeth unto your honors that Daniel H. Spofford of Newburyport in said county of Essex, the defendant in the above entitled action, is a mesmerist and practices the art of mesmerism and by his said art and the power of his mind influences and controls the minds and bodies of other persons, and uses his said power and art for the purpose of injuring the persons and property and social relations of others, and does by said means so injure them. And the plaintiff further showeth that the said Daniel Spofford has at diverse times and places since the year 1875, wrongfully and maliciously and with intent to injure the plaintiff, caused the plaintiff, by means of his said power and art, great suffering of body and mind, and severe spinal pains and neuralgia, and a temporary suspension of mind, and still continues to cause the plaintiff the same. And the plaintiff has reason to fear, and does fear, that he will continue in the future to cause the same. And the plaintiff says that said injuries are great, and of an irreparable nature, and that she is wholly unable to escape from the control and influence he so exercises upon her, and from the aforesaid effects of said control and influence. One of Eddie's students, a Mr. Henry Dunnells, recounted the other measures Eddie took in an affidavit. When the Spofford lawsuit came along, she took twelve of us from the association and made us take two hours apiece, one after the other. She made a statement that this man Spofford was adverse to her, and that he used his mesmeric and hypnotic powers over her students and her students' patients, and hindered the students from performing healing on their patients, and we were held together to keep our minds over this Spofford to prevent him from exercising this mesmeric power over her students and patients. This 24 hours work was done in her house. Eddie brought one student, a man named Edward Ahrens, to act as a lawyer for Brown, along with 20 more of her students to act as witnesses. Spofford did not appear himself, but sent an attorney who petitioned for an immediate dismissal of the case. The judge agreed, declaring with some amusement that the power of the court did not extend to Spofford's mind. An appeal made in November was similarly waived, thus ended in a Salem courthouse the last known trial for witchcraft in the United States. The saga might have ended there, were it not for an additional criminal charge brought against Edward Ahrens and Asa Gilbert Eddy. The two men were arrested and charged on October 29, 1878, for conspiracy to murder Daniel Spofford. According to witness testimony in the case, early one October morning, 
An unknown man with an imposing figure knocked on Spofford's Boston office door. The man explained that he had been offered $500 to, quote, put Mr. Spofford out of the way. Involving the police in the matter, the man identified the two men who had hired him as Gilbert Eddy and Edward Ahrens. According to the hired man's testimony, the plan was to take Spofford out to some remote road, knock him unconscious, entangle his body in his horse's reins, and cause the horse to run, making Spofford's death look accidental. The Eddie's housekeeper also testified, saying that Mr. Eddie said often that Spofford kept his wife in agony and that he would be glad of Spofford's disappearance. The case was deemed serious enough to be passed to the Superior Court in December of 1878. However, between the criminal records of most of the witnesses for the prosecution and the defense's insistence on behalf of Mrs. Eddie that the whole thing was the result of mesmerism, the district attorney refused to pursue the case, and it too was dismissed on January 31, 1879. The bicycle was only a hint of the modern marvels to come to Ipswich. In the last decades of the 19th century, science began to unlock the secrets of the universe at an unprecedented rate. We began to see the potential in harnessing electricity as a source of power, in sending our voices through miles of wire to speak over vast distances, and in using radio waves to communicate where even wires failed to reach. Modern psychology was also beginning to reveal the complexities of the human mind and the ties between mental and physical health, as the possibility of humans reaching out to one another through impassable space became a reality. It follows that the central principle of mesmerism should emerge with such force. If we could reach out to one another with the aid of a few wires, what could we not accomplish through the power of the mind? Mary Baker Eddy's philosophy of healing through the methods of Christian science was touted as new, but it was, in fact, one of the oldest methods of healing known to humankind. The idea that a spiritual healer might eliminate physical illness by purifying and fortifying the mind or spirit of the patient is an ancient one, practiced by shamans, priests, and even exorcists since the beginning of recorded history. Of course, in a universe where spiritual healing exists, the reverse must also be true. Illness, pain, and disability become the results of a spiritual attack. A curse. When Asa Gilbert Eddy passed away suddenly in 1882, Mary Eddy declared that it could be nothing else but a case of mental assassination. Eddy argued relentlessly against the idea of evil in the universe. But in the end, she concluded that her feelings of persecution could have only one cause, the invisible workings of a malicious will on her own. In other words, witchcraft.
If you enjoyed today's episode, you can subscribe to Enchanted wherever you listen. Rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts helps new listeners find us, so if you want to help spread the word, please leave a review and tell your friends about us. This episode was produced by me, with the voice talents of Jack Krause and original music by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com. You can get in touch with us via email at enchantedpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Enchanted Podcast and on Twitter at Enchanted Pod. To learn more about the show or to become a supporter and help keep the magic going, please visit enchantedpodcast.net. I'm Corinne Wieben. Thank you for listening and stay enchanted. <laughs>